morning, Grace Hill. Hope you guys are doing well this morning. Uh, my name's Alan, one of the pastors here at Grace Hill. And if you're new here, we haven't met before. I'd love to be able to meet um, in the lobby afterwards. If you're coming to our table lunch, this is week three of that. It's been so great to have lunch with you guys the last two weeks. I'm looking forward to getting lunch with you uh, as well this afternoon. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open that up to the Gospel of Luke. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke, as you know, for some time, and we're going to continue to study uh, the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 16, so you've got some time to get your Bibles open and to get to chapter 16. If you want to use your phone app, that's fine with us. Words will be on the screen as well. Um, and we'll read together in just a, a few moments. Um, you know, I think it's a question we've probably all have pondered at one point in our life. The question of, if I were given just a few months to live, what would I do? How would I live those few months of my life? Now, of course, maybe we would come up with different experiences we would want to have, you know, or, or some cool things that are on our bucket list or whatever it is that we would want to do. But, but I think for most of us, if we, if we encountered that, what would be running through our minds and our hearts would be, what do I want to convey to the people I love the most? Like before I go, what do I want them to know? You know, as I was, I was thinking about that question, I was thinking about my kids. Like, I would just want my kids, I would long for my kids to know without a shadow of their doubt that their daddy adored them and was just proud of them. Like, just, that's all I would want them to know, like over these few months. As we jump into Luke, again, we're in chapter 16. I think we need to understand that this is the mindset that Jesus is in. Jesus, as we know, he's headed toward the cross. We've been talking about this. He's on his final journey up to Jerusalem where he ultimately will be crucified. He knows this. He knows he doesn't have much more time in the flesh with his disciples and with all of the crowds that are following him. And so Jesus is teaching, urgently teaching these people all kinds of things before he goes to the cross. And so as we've been in this journey with Jesus, where Jesus, it, literally in Luke, it says he set his face towards Jerusalem, which means he set his face towards the cross, and he's headed in that direction. Ever since we made that pivot in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been providing us challenging text after challenging text after challenging text, because he's urgently teaching us things about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. But one of the reasons why all of these texts have been so challenging is because Jesus is primarily here in the gospel of Luke speaking to the Pharisees. And, and yes, all of the crowds that are following him and yes, his disciples but the Pharisees were the Jewish leaders of the day, and they were following him too, listening to his teaching, encountering him. And so much of what we've been reading over the last several weeks has been Jesus encountering, battling with the Pharisees. And what's going on in the text is this, that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like, and the Pharisees are rejecting it. 
And they're just saying, no, we, we, we're not on board with that. Uh, that doesn't sound good to me. This is not something that I want to be a part of. And so what we've been seeing in Luke and what we're gonna see this morning in, in even more stark terms is this idea that the Pharisees, they had all this knowledge about God. I mean, most of them probably had memorized the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, studied the prophets, the history books. They knew their Old Testament history better than anybody else. They had all this knowledge about God, yet God didn't have their heart. That's what we're going to see in our text this morning. Last week, um, Nick Preach did a great job teaching on the parable of the shrewd manager, which is not an easy parable to preach, by the way, um, but is one of my absolute favorite. All right, and if you know me well, um, you're probably like, well, that makes total sense. Alan loves that parable. Um, but here, here's what Jesus was basically teaching in the parable of the shrewd manager. He was saying, here's what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness looks like you look at all of the things you have access to in the world, all of your money, all of your skills, your resources, your relationships, your networks, your wealth-making potential, your ideas, your leadership, whatever it is, anything you have in the world, I want you to take all of that and I want you to leverage it for the kingdom. I want you to take everything you have access to and I want you to scheme, like come up with Schemes on how you can use it to further the kingdom of God, to proclaim the kingdom of God. All right, and, and we'll get into that a bit later, uh, more so. But the, the, the whole deal with the parable of the shrewd manager was, I want you to take everything in this world and I want you to leverage it for the kingdom. But how easy is it for us, or is it possible for us to do the opposite? to take our faith, our religion, what we believe, and leverage that, use that to gain the world instead. Instead of leveraging the things of this world for the kingdom, leveraging our faith in order to gain the world. And as we continue in Luke 16, that is exactly what Jesus is gonna confront the Pharisees over. And so, the question for today, the question that as we read this text that we're gonna have to ask ourselves as we come to the end is this, who has our hearts? Who has the affection of our hearts? What do our hearts really want? Do we desire to honor God and, and we're willing to do any and, any and everything to, to do that in this world or do our hearts just desire the things of this world more? Who has our heart? That's the question. Let's read Luke chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 14. That's where we left off last week. Some interesting passages we're going to hit here. So we're going to, we're going to take us a little slow, walk through it, um, and we're going to read all the way through the end of chapter 16 in this sermon. But for right now, let me just focus on verses 14 to 18. Quick note, I meant to say this. I'm gonna read out of a different version this morning, the CSB, Christian Standard Bible. Um, there's a few verses in there I think they translate better. I normally read out of the English Standard Version, but today it's from the CSV, so if you're interested. Let me read verses 14 and 15. It says this. 
the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things. Jesus is telling of the parable of the shrewd manager. Okay, that's what we just left off up in verse chapter 16. So they listened to that parable and scoffing at him, scoffing at Jesus. All right? And Jesus told them, verse 15, you are the ones, Pharisees, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly, highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. So immediately with the Pharisees, we, we learn this information. They're lovers of money. Who has their heart? What has their heart? The world does. Money does. Pursuing after that. We're told immediately that's where their heart is. That's where their love and affection is. But yet we know that they have this almost impeccable religious exterior. Right? They know the word of God better than anybody else. It appears they keep the law better than anybody else. They're the teachers of the law. So they have this impeccable religious exterior, but, but God sees the heart. God sees the reality that they're, they're using this impeccable religious exterior just to get the things that they want, to enrich themselves, to... Um, gain influence, power, notoriety, all of these things. So immediately, pretty stark accusation against the Pharisees here. Then Jesus is gonna go into some interesting teaching. So let's, let's see what he's trying to say. Look at verse 16, and then he says this. The, the law and the prophets were until John, that's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. All right, what is, what is Jesus saying here? So Jesus is saying, go back up to verse 16. What Jesus is saying here is that there is continuity between the law and the prophets in the proclamation of the kingdom of God by John the Baptist. In other words, there is continuity between the Old Testament, Law and the Prophets, and the New Testament. That, that starts with the gospel, John the Baptist coming on the scene, declaring that the Messiah has come and that this Messiah is going to bring the kingdom of God. He's gonna teach you what the kingdom of God is like, how we get inside the kingdom of God. And then obviously the rest of the New Testament is just expounding upon the ministry of Jesus and what he has done for us. So what we're seeing here is that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and that everyone, everyone is being urgently um, um, invited, literally the Greek says pressed into the kingdom of God urgently invited to, to repent of their sin, to believe upon what Jesus has taught and what he has done for us, and to enter the kingdom of God. So, so here's the interesting thing. Jesus is saying there's continuity. He's saying that the law and the prophets, if you read them, they're gonna point to what John the Baptist was preaching, that a Messiah was coming, and here's how the Messiah was gonna come, and here's what the Messiah would teach, and here's what the Messiah would do, that there's continuity. But the Pharisees have almost impeccable knowledge of the law and prophets. 
like memorized large sections of them, been studying them for their entire lives since they were little kids. So they have almost impeccable knowledge of it, but yet they don't see the continuity. They're rejecting the Messiah. They're rejecting the kingdom. They're rejecting the message proclaimed by both John the Baptist and Jesus. So, so what do we do with that? They have all of this knowledge, but they don't agree with the, the continuity. They don't agree that the law and the prophets point to Jesus. And so I think the conclusion here is we, we have to understand is that the, the Pharisee, what they're doing, they're rejecting the kingdom of God despite their knowledge of the Old Testament because God doesn't have their hearts. Their hearts aren't set upon God. The affections of their heart aren't set upon God. Their affections of their heart are set upon other things. The things of this world, they were lovers of money. And Jesus is not friendly to someone whose heart is set on money. He's gonna challenge that. So they have knowledge of the word of God. The word of God is designed to point you to the kingdom as proclaimed by John the Baptist and Jesus, but they're missing it. They know the word of God in their head, but they don't love the kingdom in their heart. Then we go to verse 18, and this is gonna be an example, but I'm just gonna tell you, it feels like it's like way out of left field. You're like, all of a sudden we just this pivot point and we have this, some, just a couple of verses on, or at least one verse on marriage. And so this is where you gotta be careful in your Bible, right? Our modern Bibles have uh, chapters and verses and headings and different things that help you navigate it, which are helpful, but those didn't exist when Luke was penning his story about Jesus. So it's not like Luke just decided, hold on, time out on the Pharisees. Let's just quick thing on marriage and then let's go back to the story. That's not what's happening. This is part of the narrative somehow. And so all of a sudden, verse 18, let's read it. It says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Okay, where does that come from? What's going on? Well, I think what's happening here is Jesus is providing an example of how the Pharisees would manipulate the law, use the law for their own desires instead of what God's desire was for it. Marriage and divorce, and especially the idea of adultery, was something Jesus talked about all the time. Jesus often called the Pharisees uh, adulterers because they were being uh, they were being uh, disloyal. They were portraying God himself by not accepting the Messiah. But also, this is an example that's used by Jesus. Uh, I believe it's over in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus uses the same example, and he says, listen, your hearts are hard in this matter. So, so here's what Jesus is doing. We see that the, the Pharisees, right, God doesn't have their heart. Um, they use the things of their religion, their faith, uh, the law for their own benefit to satisfy their own desires. And so what Jesus is basically saying here is, yes, Moses in the Old Testament provided some circumstances that divorce would be permissible. And you have seen that like a tax loophole to exploit. 
What you want is what you want. You're not after what God's heart is when it comes to marriage. You're not after what God's heart is when it comes to anything. And so you found a loophole that you could exploit. And what we see you doing, my guess is, this was a fairly common practice of Pharisees using this loophole in order to get what they wanted out of marriage or to divorce their wife if they wanted to. This is just an example where Jesus is saying, see, you're using the law for your own desires instead of seeing if your heart mirrors with what God's desires are and what God wants for you. So this isn't designed to be a full, robust teaching on marriage and divorce here in Luke 16. There are other scriptures that we could go to, so we're not gonna dwell on that today, but Jesus is basically using this as an example. And so here's, here's where we are in the text. We have the Pharisees who have so much knowledge about the scripture that hasn't impacted their heart. God doesn't have their heart. They use the scriptures, they use the law for their own purposes instead of for the purposes of the kingdom. They're rejecting the Messiah, they're rejecting the kingdom. And so what Jesus is gonna do now is he's gonna tell a parable, another parable, that is going to help us to understand the implications of that. The implications of that. And that we get to verse 19. It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You might be familiar with it. So in that context, with this discourse with the Pharisees, Jesus launches into this story. Let me read the entire thing through verse 31 and then we'll, we'll break it down. Jesus says, there was a uh, rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. He's in heaven. He's in the kingdom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, in hell, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They've read Moses and the prophets. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. 
It's a tough story in parable by Jesus. As always with Jesus' parables, we wanna break down the characters. Who's in the story? So we have the rich man. What do we know about the rich man? Well, the rich man, one, loved his wealth. We know that from verse 19. We also believe, I think, from the scripture that the rich man should be considered a Jewish person, someone who followed the Jewish scriptures or at least studied it, believed it, and that was a part of his life. And the reason why I say that is, one, in verse 24, he, he calls Abraham Father Abraham, all right? The, the Jewish nation was the offspring of Abraham, and so he calls Abraham Father Abraham. Uh, the other thing we see is in verse 29, it, it says that his uh, uh, brothers have access to the law and the prophets, And then also, I just think it fits the greater narrative of the text. Jesus is obviously setting up this story after he just got done talking about the Pharisees who were lovers of money, where the rich man is designed to represent the Pharisee in the story. So we have the rich man who's representing the Pharisee. Then we have Lazarus. You know, he's a poor man. He has no shelter. He has no food. And he just longs for the scraps from the rich man's table. Now, it would make sense for Lazarus to believe maybe the rich man would be gracious and merciful to him by letting him have some of the scraps off his table because the man was Jewish. And the Jewish scriptures actually command in the law for them to do this. Like I think of Leviticus 19, if you go read it, it, it's laws about when you're harvesting your crops. And one of the things that God says to his people is when you're harvesting your crops, all right, don't go back through and pick up all that was left over. Don't go back through and make sure you picked up every piece of crop that you can leave a bunch so the poor can come and have their fill. That was part of God's law. That was part of God's heart. That's in Moses and the prophets. But as we read in the text, it doesn't even seem like the rich man noticed Lazarus. At least the text doesn't tell us. So you have the rich man and Lazarus. They both die. Lazarus is in the kingdom of God. The rich man is in hell. Now, this particular parable by Jesus is some of the most descriptive language we get about hell in scripture. Now it is a parable, so it's not designed to give us systematic theological knowledge about what hell is or what hell is like, but it does give us a window into Jesus' mind on how he would illustrate it. And so some of the things that we see about this reality of hell is that it is a place of agony. Jesus used the description of flame, and we also see here that it is a place of finality. It's a place of judgment. And so what we see in the text is that you have this rich man, the the Pharisee. John the Baptist came. He proclaimed the kingdom like we read a few verses ago. And what John the Baptist proclaimed is repent, repent. Like, repent of your sin so that you can come into the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand, yet the Pharisees rejected that. They do not want to repent. And so what we see is that when the rich man dies, the opportunity for him to repent, the the year of the Lord's favor, as John the Baptist would say earlier in Luke, has now expired And the thing that he realizes is that your pedigree will not get you into the kingdom. 
What your last name is will not get you in the kingdom. What your genealogy, genealogy is will not get you in the kingdom. Your religious practices itself will not get you in the kingdom. And the other thing the rich man discovers in the parable is that his wealth that he loved so much was only temporary. It didn't go with him into eternity. And so in the parable, once the rich man realizes the finality of his condition, he begs Abraham, right? Please, okay, if nothing can be done about me, at least go warn my family. Send Lazarus to come back from the dead and tell my family. Tell my family to believe. Tell my family to repent. Tell my family that this is all true. And Abraham says, I have. I have. They have the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets point to the kingdom of God. They speak of these things. There is continuity between the old and the new. The law and the prophets speak of the Messiah. The law and the prophets speak of the kingdom of God. The problem here is not information or access to information. The problem is their hearts. God doesn't have their heart. They love the world more than they love God. They don't want to hear it. If the scriptures won't move them, someone coming back from the dead won't move them. That's how powerful the affections of our heart are. More powerful than our knowledge. You know, family, as we read this text and we grapple with what it means for us today, I think I think we're just forced to ask the question, like, who has our heart? What are we lovers of? And how does that love, how does that affection literally impact the way we see everything else, including our faith, including the kingdom of God? Who has our heart? Does God have our heart or does the world have our heart? And this is such a a tricky question because our hearts are so deceitful to us. Just like the rich man, just like the Pharisee, it's so easy for us to think, look, look at all that I know, look at all that I do, look at my pedigree, look at my story, look at all the things I've done in my life. Of course, God has my heart. And we're pointing to all of these external things to say, of course, God has my heart, but we never look inside to see if that's true. And so to, to end our time this morning, I, I want to I ask, because I have three indications, three indications that, that God has our hearts, just from the text. But in fact, two of them are straight from the text, and one's just more general from all of it. But three indications, just asking a question, does God have my heart? Here's the first one. Indication number one is this, that God has your heart. Is your end is the kingdom, right? Your end goal is the kingdom. And everything else in this world are the means. 
not the other way around, right? Like we said earlier. It's not that we see God and our faith as a means to get what we want, which would be whatever it is in this world, notoriety, riches, whatever it is. No, 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 no. All the things of this world that I have access to, all of these things of the world that I am blessed to be able to interact with, I see as a means towards the end of the kingdom, working towards the kingdom of God. Like when I look at the things of my life, the, 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 the money in my bank account, the assets that I have, the skills and career and job and networks and relationships that I have, all of it, my, my potential and the things that I can do. Do, do I see the, all of those things as a playground of stuff to scheme for God's kingdom? You know, I'm, I'm going to use this stuff to do the things that God has called me to do. Now, I'm going to start a business to fund kingdom initiatives. I'm going to use whatever it is, my skills, to go and point people to the kingdom, to build up my church, to get to know my neighbors, to love people in the way that Jesus loved people. Like, this is all just a playground for me to honor God with, because that's the end. And so when I give these three indications, the, the thing that I want us to do with these is I just think these are really great things to start to pay attention to in our lives, to be curious about. Instead of pointing to a bunch of external stuff, to, to look inside of our hearts and go, I want to be curious. How do I view all of the things that I have in this world? Do I view it as an end to itself? Or do I see it as things God has entrusted to me to scheme for the kingdom? Let's pay attention to that. Because think of the amazing things we could do if we started to unleash all that we have access to for the things that God loves and the things that God has a heart for. So indication one, that God has your heart is your end, your end goal is, is the kingdom. Number two, you just, I, I, we can't escape this in the Gospel of Luke. Your, your heart mirrors God's heart for the poor and marginalized. I was talking to our staff team this week, just we were reading this text and thinking about it, and we, and we were just all commenting on, just in Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, you can't escape it. You can't escape God's heart for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the lost. It's over and over and over and over and over and over again. And oh, by the way, next week we're gonna be talking about it because it keeps coming. It is so clear, overwhelmingly clear, God's heart for the poor and the marginalized. He moves towards them with compassion. God's heart lurches towards them. And so people whom God has their heart begin to lurch as well. So it's just a question for us. It's a thing to pay attention to, to be curious about on the inside. D does my heart lurch towards the poor and marginalized in the way that God's does? Because just even in the stories that Jesus tells, when, when Jesus is trying to think of an example, how can I describe the kingdom of God like he did today with this parable of the rich man and Lazarus? He always moves towards and there was someone who was poor or someone who was oppressed or someone who was put on the outside. It's always an example he has. It's like Jesus is just so on the surface of his heart. It's the first example he goes to every single time. And so it's just an indication for us. Does our heart mirror God's heart for the poor and marginalized? Something just for us to pay attention to, to ask. Does it? Why or why not? 
And then here's, here's number three. This is the more general one. Just an indication that God has our heart is this, is that repentance is not a threat. Um, to the Pharisees, repentance was a threat. Uh, repentance was the idea of admitting, um, I have failed. It's to bring shame on my family. It's to admit that my pedigree isn't strong enough. It's to admit all kinds of things. It was a hard concept for them, hard. For, for a lot of reasons, they grew up in that. That's all they knew. But for someone whom God has their heart, repentance is not a threat because here's the thing. God doesn't judge us based off of our performance, our pedigree, all the external factors. He doesn't judge us based off of how much we know the scriptures. He doesn't judge us based off of how much we gave to the poor last week. That those aren't the metrics God uses. God just wants to know, do I have your heart? And the indication that God has your heart is there's a willingness to go, God, I realize that there are so many things in my heart that aren't aligned with yours. And I just wanna confess that and God ask you for help. I need your forgiveness and when people go to God with that posture, God, I need your help. I want my heart to align with yours. Listen, family, there is a well of grace and mercy and transformation waiting for you at the cross of Jesus Christ where God says, yes, come in. Let's get to work. Let's do it. There is forgiveness for you. My son went to the cross to pay all of it off. And there is transformation for you. He rose from the dead so that we could begin to do a work inside of you to begin to transform your heart to mirror mine. It doesn't have to be perfect today. But the first step in that direction is repentance, saying, God, help my heart in this. Help me to love people the way you love people. Help me to see the kingdom the way you see the kingdom. Help me to reorient how I think about all the things I have in the world at my disposal for your purposes. I believe that all of this that you're leading me to is for my joy. I'm gonna trust you with that. And so God, you can have my life. That's, that's all repentance is. That's why Jesus says that it's the meek who will inherit the kingdom of God. Right, Not the externally strong, but the meek. Those who are poor of spirit, who are willing to go to God and say, God, I'm weak, I need your help. And so Grace Hill, just my question, these are, these are questions that we can be curious about today, questions that we can pay attention to in our own life. So just I wanna ask you, who has your heart this morning? I just challenge you to take these three things and, and do some reflection on them, to, to do some journaling on them, to, to ask them, and then to, to run to the gospel of grace every single day. Let's not be flippant about the finality of our text this morning that Jesus has offered the kingdom to us. He's inviting us in. He's offering forgiveness for us. He's offering transformation for us. He has wide open arms, but that is not an offer that's open forever. 
that there is judgment at the end of the day for those who will not repent of their sins. Our text forces us to encounter that reality. And so this is a serious matter. It's a weighty matter, but at the same time, Grace Hill, it's a offer from God who desires all to be saved. It's offer from God in our text says, whom everyone is urgently being pressed to come into the kingdom. And so let's be a people who want to have God's heart. Let's be a people who don't see repentance as a threat, but repentance as an opportunity and a grace from God who wants to bring us in. And let's be a people who work hard for the kingdom of God because God has given us the opportunity to be a part of that. Let me pray for us. God, I'm just thankful for your text this morning. As, as we noted, we know we're in, a, we're in a heavy section of Luke with some very challenging teaching from Jesus. But God, we realize that these are words of life. Even when we have to think about the finality of judgment and the reality that that is, that, that God, you are not a God who makes us try to figure out how to escape that on our own. No, you're a God who came after us. You're a God who is gracious and merciful, who sent your son so that we would not be judged for our sins and who is willing to do a work in our hearts to change and transform it. And so God, we come to you as a church body. I just pray on behalf of my brothers and sisters in this room when we say, God, we come to you and we ask God, continue to change our heart. We're not afraid of repentance. We're not afraid of being shown as weak. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, God, we know that in our weakness, your power and your strength is made perfect. So God, use us, transform us, convict us where our hearts are in love with this world, and help us to run to the gospel of grace where you have open arms. We love you, Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.